Virginia gets exposed on the road at Florida State. Virginia Tech is dealing with COVID issues, and it hopes it gets its shot at the Seminoles this weekend. Boston College dumps its coach, and Duke loses its star freshman. All that and more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 41 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and here joining me as always, my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, Mr. David Teal. David, how are you, sir? Good afternoon, Mike. I'm well and hope you're the same. I am, I am, and and before we get into the sports, we uh, we had another holiday. It feels like every time we do an episode, we're coming off either a, a holiday or a major uh, sporting event like the Super Bowl. This time it was Valentine's Day. In the Teal household, do you do anything special to celebrate Valentine's Day? Not really. It, it falling on a Sunday th- this year was, was different. And we had a little church project that we participated in, uh, delivering some goodie bags to some frontline healthcare workers at their homes, which was really cool. And then the girls went off and saw grandma. Well, that sounds pretty perfect. And that sounds a little more meaningful because I think sometimes the knock on Valentine's Day is is maybe it's a little bit manufactured by the the chocolate and the card company. So (laughs) from your point of view, is this a real holiday or is this a a tacky Hallmark marketing ploy? No, it's absolutely a marketing ploy. (laughs) But as a chocolate lover, I'm I'm not opposed to to holidays that are about candy. So you're on the same wavelength then as my wife. Elizabeth absolutely loves chocolate. Uh, Kiddo has followed in in, in her footsteps and we gave uh, the baby some chocolate covered strawberries that someone sent and he oh. went he went nuts for those uh, for me you know the the drill every every holiday is an excuse for food and um, so we celebrated <laughs> with I, I made a homemade from scratch paella that I've been nice. uh, dying to make so uh, I don't know that Hallmark got much out of me on, on that front but uh, that's always what the holidays uh, boil down do you have you said you're a chocolate lover do you have a favorite candy dark just yeah. just give me dark chocolate and a glass of red wine, and I am the happiest. Can- I mean, it, together now, dark chocolate, red wine after dinner, and I am so content. Oh, that sounds perfect. We'll have to do an episode here where we do uh, one of the new business trends is these virtual tastings. Uh, and I have a friend who's actually launching a company. And one of the things he wants to do is chocolate tastings. And another one is wine tastings. And I said to him exactly in, in your line of thinking, why not pair those up? Yes, <laughs> dude. Do those together, charge double. And, and uh, <laughs> um, I certainly, you know, that might be how we celebrate Valentine's Day next year. So uh, I think we're on the same page there. I, you know, I, I've always been the, the gummy candy guy, gummy bears, sour patch kids, those kind of things. Um, but in the chocolate at, in the chocolate realm, I'm a dark chocolate guy. In fact, I like the 80% and up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes uh, my daughter cringes. It says it doesn't <laughs> taste like doesn't taste like chocolate. I think she's missing the sugar, but uh, I'm with you there. Now, David, Virginia went down to Tallahassee to play Florida State on Monday night and and that wasn't very sweet <laughs> for the Cavaliers. Uh, Florida State beat up on UVA. Um, it's a, a game that might have us rethinking that the top of the ACC. David, was that a just a great night for Florida State, or were there bad signs going forward for Virginia? Both. 
Is that too much of a cop out? No, that's fair. Uh, no, it. I mean, Florida State was clearly lights out when when you shoot fifty percent overall and thirteen of twenty four from three against anyone. It is terrific to think of doing it against UVA. And oh, by the way, committing just five turnovers the entire night, uh, that's about as efficient a performance as you could ever hope to have against the Cavaliers. But I thought Florida State also exposed some things about Virginia or exposed again some things about the Cavaliers, chiefly as we've been talking about, that lack of physicality. And I thought the Cavaliers got outmuscled the other night. Yeah, in many ways, it's the worst matchup in the nation for, for Virginia. When you think about Florida State's size, toughness, depth in the front court, and then you think about their ball pressure. Uh, and we saw this in the Gonzaga loss. We saw it in the Virginia Tech loss. UVA, despite having um, an experienced point guard in Kihei Clark and a couple of ball handlers on the floor at any time, um, they struggle some with, with the ball pressure. And um, so I do think in a lot of ways, Florida State is is a bad matchup for Virginia. I asked Tony Bennett about that. Here's how he kind of viewed how that game unfolded. You may not win, but you got to eliminate losing and be an A in transition defense and defensive rebounding position. And, and we weren't that. We were at times a, a B and then at times we were a D because we weren't, you know, and they, they testing that. So, um, but they were very good tonight, shot the ball well. You could see Gray can make plays. They can put their shoulder down and, and just make some plays over the top. Hey, David, another thing that jumped out, though, was, was Florida State's defense on Sam Hauser and Jay Huff because we were, what, 48 hours removed from seeing just how dominant they could be against a team in North Carolina that has pretty good front court talent. Mm-hmm. Now you see the matchup with Florida State. Why was it different for the Seminoles? Why were they able to really take Hauser and Huff out of the offense? Because of what they did with Kihei Clark and what Florida State was able to do there, Mike, is put length on Kihei, not help, just force him to penetrate. And then be, because Florida State is so big, that just with one defender, you envelop Clark. The other defenders are still chasing Hauser and Huff, keeping them from spotting up beyond the arc, and Clark has nowhere to go. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like when Clark has his worst games, and the fans I know will get on him for this, it feels like he dribbles into traffic and he's Mm -hmm. surrounded by guys. But you're right that Florida State didn't need guys. (laughs) They just needed guy. And then now you've got a situation where Clark can penetrate into the lane. He's getting cut off. He's getting swallowed up by that one defender. But because there's no help, there isn't an obvious place to go with the ball. Uh, what is the solution, David, to that? Or, or is it a situation where they're going to have to find a different way to play when they face a team like Florida State? Well, they figured it out there for a little while at the start of the second half, and Clark was finishing at the rim. I mean, he had that flurry there, Mike, where Virginia cut a 20-point halftime deficit to seven in a heartbeat, and you're thinking, hey, game on. But then it all crashed and burned from a Virginia perspective, and Florida State eventually went on a 17-0 binge, and that was that. But I, I think there for a moment, you, you, you saw Clark be, being able to finish and get some other people involved. And Hauser and Huff, well, especially Jay Huff, he's just got to be more aggressive. I mean, how many – 
how many shots did he take the other night? Four, five, something mm-hmm. like that. And he played 32 minutes. So you, you can't say, oh, well, he wasn't out on the floor. Yeah, he was out on the floor virtually the entire night. Yeah, you know, that's the first thing I think people probably looked at if, if they still pick up the morning paper and look for the box score, um, as I think we grew up kind of doing. You look at the box score, you think, oh, did he get himself in foul trouble? Because nope. that's the thing. And he didn't. He wasn't in foul trouble. He wasn't able to get anything going, certainly in the low post. Uh, and they weren't really able to get him open looks on the wing, which, um, you know, they weren't able to spread the floor for shooters uh, the way they do when they're offensively at their best. Now, that's the offense. The other end of the floor, and David, you mentioned the the lack of physicality, maybe the lack of toughness. This UVA defense still looks like it might be a little off. Are, are you starting to be concerned? I don't, know. I don't know if concerned is the right word, Mike, but how many times the other night did you see Raekwon Gray just dip his shoulder and go to the bucket? and Virginia be unable to stop him. Now, he he can do that to a lot of people, but normally Virginia doesn't allow that to happen. And then if if you look at all four games the Cavaliers have lost this season, San Francisco, Gonzaga, Virginia Tech, Florida State, there is one glaring common thread, and that's three-point shooting. Those four teams combined against Virginia – went 45 of 90 beyond the arc. That's 50, that's 50%, my friend. That'll beat a lot of teams. It feels like that's been the the danger for Virginia since Tony Bennett got there, right? If somebody gets hot from the outside. But I think it's exacerbated this year by, and I, I've said this before and I wrote about it, and I, I'm not banging on Jay Huff because I think he's a great, player in a lot of ways Um, and I think he can be a great defensive player in a lot of ways he's a different style player and I know we talked about this at the back of the pack Mm -hmm. he isn't able to get out on a shooter and recover as quickly as some of the past guys and the Darian Atkins or Akil Smith or or Isaiah Wilkins when you look at that is that something that they have found um, a way to play around or is this just a problem and, and, and the pack isn't going to work as well without a, a five man who can get out and get back? Well, it's not going to work as well against a team such as Florida State that can shoot it from virtually every position. I mean, this is Florida State's best three point shooting team percentage wise since 1988 when the arc was a heck of a lot closer than it is now. And you knew it was going to be a tough night for UVA when the 7-1 sophomore from Bulgaria, whose name I'm going to just butcher here, Balsa Koprovica, I I think I have that right. sounds good. It it sounds like something I might make for dinner also. (laughs) I'll go with your guess. (laughs) Mike, he had not attempted, let alone made a three in his collegiate career until Monday night when he stepped out there beyond the arc and let fly. And it's and it splashed. It didn't bank. It didn't catch rim. And I thought to myself, it is not Virginia's night when that happens. Well, it certainly was not Virginia's night. And, and that brings us to this week's edition of Take It or Leave It. Thank you, Mike. It is Take It or Leave It. And after seeing Florida State manhandle Virginia on Monday night, the Seminoles are now the team to beat in the ACC. Take it or leave it. And let's start with Mike. 
Yeah, I, I, I have to take it. I mean, I think Florida State in many ways was the team to beat coming in. Uh, I know we both picked Virginia. We both really liked Virginia because we thought the defense would be what it always is and the offense would be better. Well, the offense has been better but not consistent enough, and the defense hasn't been what it always is. But I think this question is more about Florida State. And, uh, you know, this is what Leonard Hamilton has been doing for years with the Seminoles, but this year he's doing it with even more talent. Um, it's depth, it's athleticism, it's physicality, it's a big front court, but don't make it sound like it's a system. The The Seminoles are good. <laughs> They've got good players. So uh, right now, yeah, the team that won the, the regular season championship last year that was a- awarded the league title, that's the team to beat in the ACC, and that's Florida State. All right, David? I will take it, guys, with, with, with a caveat. I think Florida State's the best team in the ACC. Presuming there is an ACC tournament in Greensboro, I think the Seminoles are the team to beat there. And I think that Florida State is best equipped among all the ACC teams for a long run in the NCAA tournament. However, when it comes to the regular season, despite losing to Florida State, Virginia has an advantage here. If both teams win out, Virginia will be the top seed in the ACC tournament simply because it will have played more ACC games because of COVID, will have a better winning percentage, and loss at Florida State notwithstanding, Virginia would be, quote unquote, the regular season champion. And I think Virginia's schedule the rest of the way is more manageable than FSU's. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that you say that because, David, Saturday, the next time Virginia plays, they play Duke. And normally that would be one of those games you circle as deciding the top of the conference. Not this year. The Blue Devils, they're mired in a disappointing season. They just had their star freshman, Jalen Johnson, opt out for the rest of the season. That It's really a nice way of saying he quit. Now, the reasoning makes sense, I think, to both of us. Johnson's your your typical Duke one-and-done. Uh, he wasn't at Duke for his education. He wasn't at Duke for his degree. He, he was there because the rules don't let you go straight from high school to the NBA. Uh, so, David, whether we understand his thinking or not, he's still quitting on this year's team, is he not? I'm not sure, Mike, and, and, and here's why. Where is he from a health standpoint? You know, he missed quite a bit of time with a foot injury. Has he aggravated it? He only played eight minutes against North Carolina State on Saturday. Is that because his coach doesn't think he's playing well enough? Is that because he's not healthy enough to play? None of this has been explained. And Jalen Johnson, because the NBA drafts on potential rather than performance, he stands to make a lot of money come this summer at, you know, when he is a, a presumptive first round pick, if not a lottery pick. So if that foot is somehow compromised, then yeah, I can see why he would quote unquote opt out. Otherwise, then yes, I think you can say if he's just bailing because the season's not going great and he's mad because he's not getting minutes, then I think the description is apt, and yes, he is quitting. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because however you feel about it, I think Duke and Mike Krzyzewski, they understand 
the process. They understand how it all works. They understand the one and done thing. I would think, and obviously you don't want to put out more injury information on a kid um, that could damage his draft prospect. That being said, NBA teams go over these guys with a fine tooth comb. (laughs) So whatever there is. So maybe they're trying to protect, um, you know, his outlook or, or, or his prospect in terms of the injury, but you would think they would be savvy enough to drop a line somewhere in there, even if it was vague. Mm -hmm. Um, And they didn't, they didn't say, uh, you know, he wants to focus on getting himself healthy for his NBA future. They -hmm. talked about preparing for his NBA future. So you're absolutely right. And and again, I, I think he's quitting on the team, no matter how you slice it. Um, I don't know that I blame him uh, if that makes sense. You know, these kids have a lot on the line. It is about their future. Going to Duke as a one and done was about positioning himself uh, for the NBA. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'd love to know, and, and I don't think they would ever speak out publicly, but I'd love to know what the other guys in the locker room. Yes. Are, right. I was because just going to say that Mike, you, you have to feel as a teammate. I mean, it's sort of the cardinal sin in team sports, right? You don't abandon your team. You don't abandon your team when the, the going gets tough. You don't abandon your team. And um, Keith, I, I mean, I think back to what the time Tony Kukoc wouldn't, uh, or, or was it Scotty Pippen wouldn't go into the game off, because uh, the, the Bulls had right because right. the Bulls had drawn up a game-winning shot for Tony Kukoc instead. Um, I don't know that Scotty Pippen for people my age ever lived that down. Um, you know, quitting on your team in, in those key spots is is the cardinal sin, and it, it just I would love to know what the other guys think um, about this decision. Yeah, no, it's it would be a fascinating conversation if if truth serum were involved, and you you could get some really forthright answers. We we'd have the story. Yeah, Johnson is is the most heralded certainly of of the Duke freshman class, but there's other kids in that class, and and I'll tell you what, three of them are from Virginia, <laughs> um, which is pretty impressive in its own right. Uh, Leesburg guard Jeremy Roach, he's averaging just under ten points a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's been a, a regular in the lineup. Uh, the guy who's really coming on here, Virginia Beach seven foot center Mark Williams. Uh, he's only at 3.7 points, 3.3 rebounds, I think, for the season. Uh, but he's averaged over seven points a game, um, five rebounds a game his last five outings. Um, I think that's a situation where uh, you've got some young guys who maybe they're not the one and done level, but boy, they seem to be developing uh, for Duke. And, and then the third one is Henry Coleman, the former yeah. Trinity Episcopal star. Uh, he got big minutes, career high uh, in the Carolina game. Um, he isn't quite where the other other two are, but uh, there's still a talent in this Duke program, right? Oh, absolutely. And you haven't mentioned their best player, especially with Johnson gone, and that's Matthew Hurt who's the second leading scorer in, in the league and, and among the top rebounders who had a terrific game Saturday against NC State. And as did, by the way, Mark Williams, who had career highs of 13 points and five block shots and is now starting in place of the aforementioned Jalen Johnson. So, yeah, there is undeniable talent on that roster where Duke has serious issues is on the defensive end where you, you see, you know, they, they gave up 91 points to North Carolina. The Tar Heels have six double figure scores. Then reality hits when the Tar Heels go to JPJ and have no double figure scores and score 48. It's uh, it's been such a bizarre year, obviously, on so many fronts. Uh, but yeah, Duke. When you look at the talent on their roster, 
North Carolina, too, they're struggling in a way that, that maybe doesn't make sense, right? Duke's a little down. North Carolina's a little down. David, that leads into the perception that the ACC is having a down year. Mm-hmm. I think Florida State and UVA, they're both top 10 caliber teams, uh, Elite Eight, maybe Final Four. Virginia Tech, Louisville, uh, Clemson are all very good. Carolina's still hanging in there. Georgia Tech is, is a tough out. Uh, Syracuse remains competitive. So is it a down year or does everyone just panic when Duke and Carolina aren't in the top 10? Yes and yes. Everyone absolutely panics around these parts when Duke and Carolina, when I say these parts, I mean the ACC region, when Duke and Carolina are not uh, vintage caliber. And yes, it, it is a down year, Mike, because really the only way we have to measure and compare conferences is by non-conference competition. Now, this season, not as drastic as in football when there was virtually no conference cross-pollination. This year in basketball, there was some. But if if you look at resumes, the team with the best non-conference resume is by far Clemson. You know, Clemson beat Purdue, beat Alabama, beat Maryland. You know, Virginia Tech has the great win over Villanova, but got raced by Penn State at home. Otherwise, otherwise, tell me who the ACC has beaten outside the league. There, yeah. I mean, there, there's nobody. Yeah, and, you know, of course, to be fair, Virginia had some marquee games right. <laughs> wiped out. A lot of teams did. Yes. So it's not, it's not that the ACC didn't position itself properly. It's, you know, it's a wild year, um, but those opportunities just aren't there. And, and what's interesting to me about the ACC is it, I know coaches talk about, you know, the league kind of eating its own because of how much talent and depth there is in the league. I've always kind of looked at it the other way and that the ACC, maybe more than any other league, certainly the Big Ten's up there now, but um, gives you the opportunity once conference play starts to improve your resume because almost every game you're playing somebody that the committee's going to view as, as a pretty quality win. Uh, but this year, without those comparison points, it's hard to say. And um, so I don't know if the league is, is down in terms of talent, but I think it's down in terms of uh, collective resumes. I think that that's perfectly fair to say. Yeah. And, you know, you, you look at some of the losses the league Mm-hmm. suffered in nine, you know, Florida state, as much as we like them, they <laughs> lost at home to UCF. Georgia tech lost to Mercer in Georgia state. Uh, and I think Notre Dame's best win out of conference is Bellarmine. You know, Pitt lost to St. Francis of Pennsylvania. UVA lost to USF, not South Florida, San Francisco. <laughs> um, so th- th- there are, there are some L's that you know, raise your eyebrow a little bit. And let's not knock Bellarmine that they're having a pretty good season over there. Oh, they, but, they are. <laughs> but no, yes, your your point's absolutely spot yeah. on. And um, and because of the nature of this year, a, a bad loss here or there early in the season that normally mm-hmm. you kind of throw out, it lingers and, and it has a little more staying power. And uh, that's going to be a problem. Now, um, again, there, there are some teams with, with, I think, Virginia Tech's resume is a really good resume at this point. Now, oh, we've talked absolutely. about can they maintain it? Right, Mike Young's club. They're sitting at fourteen and four, and, and David, uh, I, I don't mean to laugh, but they've been sitting for a bit now. Oh. Uh, they have not played since an overtime road win at Miami on February sixth. They were scheduled to host Carolina last night. We're recording this here on Wednesday, but some positive COVID tests that forced that game to join the, the long, long, long. 
and growing list uh, of ACC It's on my legal pad, by the way. And yes, I'm running out of room. I was just going to say, you might have to flip over at this point. Uh, so many games postponed and, and none of the tech players have tested positive for the virus, but other members of the program, what they label as tier one. Um, so guys who travel, guys who are in close contact, uh, they did a couple of them tested positive and with contact tracing that, that takes a lot of bodies out. Mike Young told us he's been trying to run practices since the middle of last week with a six players, six guys, six guys. That's, I mean, that would be hard. You know, that's the story of the small high school team <laughs> that doesn't have enough kids. And it's amazing that they are able to feel the competitive team. It doesn't work in college basketball. One of the advantages that a Duke or a Carolina has is that their first five play against their second five, and there's a real matchup there. Virginia Tech, we're not even talking about a drop-off from the starters to the backups. We're talking about you're playing against air. <laughs> you're drilling maybe against managers. Uh, it's unclear if they're going to be able to play this Saturday now against Florida State. We're waiting for word on that. Here's Mike Young talking about the Hokies situation. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday that uh, that that – you know, we had um, we realized we had uh, we had an issue, and um, uh, you know, holding your breath that uh, you know you don't get uh, hit with the uh, contact tracing. Um, maybe that's uh, inevitable, and and we got uh, we got we got hit by it. And um, uh, I haven't had a player test positive, but the contact tracing is uh, is you know uh, is is there for uh, a reason, and uh, that's uh, that's where our uh, our difficulties, uh, you know, are uh, and continue to uh, to be. David, we've seen some teams like Florida State come back from pauses and uh, and thrive. We've seen others like Clemson really stumble after their breaks. Hard question, but what do we think we're going to get from the Hokies, Mike? Because all pauses are not created equal. I think the the, the accurate answer is I have no clue, <laughs> because number one. We don't know who those six players are that Tech was has been practicing with. How many of those are walk-ons? What's that roster going to look like whenever the Hokies return to competition? And I'm, I'll be very surprised if Virginia Tech goes to Tallahassee this week. I think the Hokies' next game is going to be Tuesday against Georgia Tech at home. But even even then – you know, will they be at, at full strength? How many days of practice will the available players have had? You know, you and I have both talked to Brad Brownell about how grueling it was trying to get his team back in, in game shape because they really lost their legs. You know, closer to home, we, we've seen Richmond struggle after, after its pauses. And the, the, the Spiders are coming off another one, at least from an Atlantic 10 standpoint, when they play VCU tonight. So it's, it is a total coin flip as to you know, what Virginia Tech team will see post-pause because we don't know who's going to be in uniform. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and, you know, it was interesting hearing Brad Brownell talk about the conditioning and how just because a guy was back didn't mean he was mm -hmm. ready. You know, you, okay, you got 10 bodies. You feel good about playing. Uh, if six of them are guys who haven't been getting up and down the floor, what do you really have? And um, mm -hmm. how does that impact you? You know, it's funny. I reached out uh, to Virginia Tech. I tried to talk to their trainer. I tried to talk to their strength and conditioning coach uh, for a story on this. And for all the talk we hear about ACC teams working together and uh, sharing their experiences, uh, I was told they didn't want to really reveal their 
their inside plan on their conditioning, which was <laughs> so maybe a little more truth there to, uh, yeah, we're all in this together, but <laughs> of course we're all still trying to, to get an edge and come out in, in front. Uh, you know, it's interesting when, when this team has been full, when it's been healthy, and this is even when it had Tyrese Radford, of course, which yeah. is a separate issue. Yeah, we it's, don't know about him either. You know, what's his status? Right. When they've had all their pieces, the Hokies have been very good. And, and that brings us to this week's edition of Who You Got. Thank you, Mike. With just about three weeks left in the regular season, who's your pick for ACC Coach of the Year? Let's start with David. Mike Young. Don't mean to come across as a homer, but I think he's the clear choice right now what the Hokies were picked 11th in preseason I believe and they're sitting there in in the top three not that there aren't some other very deserving candidates who who might come to the fore even more in these last couple weeks chiefly Brad Brownell at Clemson and Leonard Hamilton at Florida State all right Mike so I'm a guy who almost always goes with the overcoming the, the the predictions, outperforming your expectations. In that regard, it's it's Mike Young, hands down. This is such an interesting year to me, though, and, and it has me a little split. I joked on, I think, one of our earliest episodes that the coach of the year was whoever got his team on the floor <laughs> the, mo- yeah. the most times. I think there's something this year about winning uh, the regular season championship that m- means even more. And um, whether it's Florida State, whether it's Virginia – I think there's something to be said for that. At the end of the day, it will depend on how Virginia Tech navigates the end of the year for me, right? Mm -hmm. They are the overachievers of the year. The job Mike Young has done has been remarkable. If he finds a way to hold it together for three more weeks and finish in the top four, top five of the league, yeah, I think think he's the guy. Uh, If they falter a little bit, I think whoever comes out on top this year, and I know we're always reluctant to just say, well, if you had the best team and you won the league, you did what you're supposed to do. Everybody's doing more than they're supposed to do this year with COVID, with everything they're handling, with managing all of these situations. So, uh, yeah, I think Mike Young's your lead horse if he can get his his team across the finish line. Uh, if not, I probably will defer to whoever comes out on top because I think just playing is a remarkable accomplishment this year. But but winning a league, winning the ACC this year, it, it to steal from the SEC, it just means more, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, you, you you're absolutely right. It's it is such a peculiar season, and and I I saw a a tweet from Justin Ferber who uh, writes and blogs about UVA earlier today. UVA and Miami right now as the schedule yeah. is currently constructed are the only ACC basketball teams that will have played every other team in the league at least once this season. Yeah, and that, that tells you just how crazy a season it's been. I think we're in the camp that sort of bemoans uh, unbalanced schedules to begin with. Right. Right. Like it's not ideal. It's not what you, how about this year? Uh, And again, and and you've written about this and talked about this. You've talked about this with uh, conference commissioners and other people, the job the committee is going to have separating these teams without the uh, non-conference games that they normally have, Mm -hmm. but within conference, who you played, who you didn't, when you played them. It's just, it's its a bizarre year. It's a bizarre year. We say it over and over and we'll keep saying it. And David, I thought adding to the bizarre nature <laughs> of the year, and, and to me, 
a, a real negative feel of things. Boston College fires Jim Christian uh, this week. I, I think we all saw the move coming, right? Oh, absolutely. I, 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 think, I think we both feel Jim's a, a really good coach. He hasn't gotten the job done at Boston College, so a change was coming. I think in many ways maybe surprised he got the extra year. Uh, new AD coming in. This was going to happen, but considering the pandemic, considering what these kids have been through, uh, uh, instability, uh, lack of continuity. David, what do you make of the timing? Why why fire Jim Christian with three weeks to go? I thought it was kind of low rent, Mike, and and not not to make it about us, <laughs> but money. You were there. I mean, you know how this all unfolded, and not to get too inside baseball, but Monday morning at 10 a.m. sharp, and, he, and he's early each week, by the way. Jim Christian comes on the weekly ACC media, usually a phone call, this year a Zoom, and he answers questions graciously. His team's getting its teeth kicked in, and he gives you honest answers, and he's been nothing but generous and insightful. And so they trot him out there Monday morning at 10 a.m., and then less than two hours later, they turf him? I mean, it just, it was, it was bizarre. And we did see it coming, and maybe we should have seen even the timing coming, Mike, because if you go back two weeks, Jim Christian made it very clear that he was 18 different kinds of unhappy, that his administration had said, you only have four scholarship players still suck it up, we're playing Florida State. And he made it clear he disagreed with that. And he made it clear publicly. And when when you are at public odds with your boss, that's a problem. And so in in that regard, maybe the timing, I I don't think it excuses the timing, but I think it explains the timing. Yeah, I think people like me who are maybe clutching our pearls a little bit say, why would you do this? There doesn't seem to be a lot of love there. Uh, and and maybe that's part of it. You know, maybe this isn't a case where we're sitting here saying, if you're Boston College, shouldn't you have treated him better? Maybe Boston College is saying this is exactly how we meant to treat him. Now, I don't want to read into anyone's comments, but I thought Tony Bennett, when I asked him about this the other night, he hinted at exactly that. Here was his comments about the dismissal of, of one of his coaching friends. I, I really like him a lot. I think he is a very good coach. I mean, you can look at records and all that. This profession is hard. I don't ever understand, and I, I don't know all the details. I just wish we're this close. Make those decisions at the end. I don't see the purpose in doing that now, I, I, and I don't know. And I, I like Jim, so I'm always going to support a coach. Um, but he's a smart man for the game a kind good man too but really his teams were hard to play against and injuries and breaks they had um and you know and i, I don't know if that was right they're going to make him play with four scholar five scholarship guys so the, some, something wasn't right there but i just wish they would have waited and i wish him nothing but the best and uh again this profession is it's unkind in ways like that and um but i hope he'll land on his feet and he's he's good for the game and as i said a good man David, that that certainly seemed like Tony was understandably siding with the coach, as he mentioned there, but maybe a little critical of not just the firing, but how Jim Christian's been treated all year. Right. I mean, remember when Jim Christian told us that day on the Zoom that BC was going, because the game had not been, the game was eventually postponed because of COVID concerns with Florida State. But when he told us that they were going to be playing the Seminoles with only four scholarship players, we were all just flabbergasted. And that very day on the Zoom, I asked Tony, can you imagine 
your administration doing that? And he's, he looked at me and he's like, you know, are you setting me up? That can't be true. Right. But it was. And, you know, I, I think clearly he could not imagine Carl Williams and the UVA administration saying, yeah, you only got four scholarship players. Suck it up with walk-ons. Yeah, I mean, that's you always hear you hear about a lot with with Bronco Mendenhall and Carla about being on the same page, about having that cohesion and, and working together. But if your coach tells you, I'm not comfortable doing this, I don't want to do this in this year to be the one program that says too bad, yeah. <laughs> that is not a good look. And um, and like you said, you know, Jim Christian has been first class with us. So uh, while we saw the move coming, we, we uh, we'll miss him. <laughs> uh, now we get another guy back into the fold that we enjoy talking to <laughs> and is wildly entertaining. We'll hit this quickly. John Tenuta, uh, former UVA defensive coordinator. He's been all over college football in the game forever. His son is an offensive lineman at Virginia Tech, and John is now joining the Hokies staff uh, as a defensive analyst. David, beyond just the idea of it being great to have John Tenuta back around <laughs> us, uh, this is an interesting football move for a team with a young defensive coordinator uh, yep. that, that really you know lost a guy in Tracy Clays who it had brought in to have that experience level. You replace a good amount of experience here with John Tenuta. Oh, yes. <laughs> in, in spades, he has experience, not, not only as a coordinator, but as a position coach, as an analyst, he, 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 filled this role last season at Cincinnati, where, by the way, the Bearcats were among the top 10 defenses in the land. Uh, I think he will be an, an asset. He gets to watch his son conclude his college career. And yes, he he will bring an intensity to, to the program that, that, that I'm sure that most in the building will appreciate. He is, uh, he is nothing if not intense. He, and he's a personality, man. I, I had the chance That's to catch up with John. I did a feature on, on Luke Tenuta uh, during the season. And uh, if you haven't, haven't had a chance to read that, go back. But it talks about his brother, who, who's a baseball player, uh, mm-hmm. and his dad, who's you know the coach, getting him basically through the, the pandemic by keeping him in shape. And it, what, what's amazing was uh, – so Luke would have his brother pass rush against him, right, and, and do his drills. And in exchange, Luke strapped on the catcher's gear – and caught bullpen sessions for his brother. And uh, needless to say, both of them came away well-bruised uh, and a bit humbled <laughs> from, from their experiences there. David, a, a bonus version of, of who you got, if you will. Tonight, you'll be covering Richmond VCU. You mentioned it earlier. Many people are going to listen to this podcast after the game's been played. But uh, for those who hear it today, what are you looking for in this matchup? And, and who do you like? I think it's a fascinating matchup, Mike, just for the contrast in, in the two teams. I like to look at Ken Palm's metrics. You know, VCU is the 305th ranked team in the country in terms of roster experience. Richmond is 10th. That's old against young. That's a all senior backcourt in Francis and Gilliard against, you know, Bones Highland, who's a sophomore, Ace Baldwin, who's a freshman. But as we mentioned, Richmond has, has had this recent COVID break, played Division Three St. Mary's on Sunday just to get its sea legs back. But I like VCU just because the Rams are off, you know, some, you know, they're riding a five game winning streak. They're in rhythm. 
whereas Richmond is just you know trying to you know get back in the swing. Yeah, it, it's it should be a good one. And um, tonight in this house, it's it's sausage and peppers and watching this game for me. That's that's my plan for the evening. So uh, very much looking forward to interesting side note in this one. We just talked about Jim Christian at, at Boston College. The two coaches in this one, Mike Rhodes and Chris Mooney, both guys who could get a look uh, from Boston College for that job. I don't know that they're uh, at the top of the list, but those are both guys who, who've had their names mentioned uh, in the days since the firing. Yeah. If I'm either of those guys, I'm thinking I might have a better gig w- where I am. I, the grass is not always greener, not to be cliche about it. But Mike Rhodes and, and, and Chris Mooney have pretty good gigs where they are. Absolutely. And what we talked about in the way things ended with Jim Christian, mm-hmm. say what you will, coaches talk, coaches know, uh, that's a bit of a red flag. And, and certainly having Tony Bennett sort of speak out on that topic made sure that people around the Commonwealth were were aware. So uh, yeah, I think if you can be a part of Richmond VCU, it's a good reminder of why you might want to stay exactly where you are. Well, we thank you for staying and listening to us today. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the TD. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe, and please join David and me again next week.